Hi, it's Kristen. You are listening to Rational in Portland. Hi, and thank you for listening to Rational in Portland. In this episode, I talked to Chris, who is gay. He lives in the Pearl District here in Portland, Oregon. He's a recent transplant from Minneapolis, and he arrived, as he'll tell you, in the beginning of 2020. Chris has a heartbreaking and painful story that he was really kind to share with us about his mother, who suffers from addiction and schizophrenia. In Minnesota, where she lives, she was able to get the treatment that she needs But Chris doesn't think she would be able to access that kind of inpatient treatment here in Portland. We talk about what it's like for him to have a relative who is so severely mentally ill and suffering from addiction and to be surrounded on the streets of Portland with people suffering from those same illnesses, but who cannot access help and for whom there are no incentives to seek help. Chris is also gay, and he is in a throuple. So he lives with two men that he is committed to. He has a legal husband. They have a third partner. He talks about what it's like to live in a throuple, particularly as a religious person who has been involved in a church that was not incredibly welcoming, and what that was like for his family to find out that he is in a throuple. So we have a very Portland episode for you coming up today, although it's with a Portland transplant. And it just seems like he's kind of found the perfect city for him, but I think he's really struggling with the fact that every time he walks around a corner, he sees somebody that reminds him of of the trauma that his mother goes through and the trauma that he in fact is going through and he's he says on the show, you know, he's very lucky that she was able to find some institutional assistance. And, of course, we don't really have that here. Before we get to Chris, I've received a lot of questions about the coalition I'm involved with that began with a retreat just a couple weeks ago with the invitation of Andrea Suarez at We Heart Seattle and Michael Schellenberger, who ran for governor of California and wrote the book San Francisco. Jonathan Cho and Tom Wolf, both who have done recent episodes on this podcast, are part of our coalition. If you want to check out some of the video work that we did in Seattle, you can find it on my Twitter timeline at Rational and PDX. You can also find some of it on Jonathan Cho's Twitter timeline. He's reposted it a number of times at Cho Show on Twitter. Jonathan took a group of us from the coalition on a harrowing tour of downtown Seattle. During a period of my adolescence, I lived in Kent, which is the armpit of Seattle, and I know Seattle really well. I even 
worked as a King County assistant district attorney while I was still in law school, trying numerous cases by myself under what was then still might be called a rule nine exception for people who haven't graduated yet as a way to do public service and serve the assistant district attorney before graduating from law school. I visited Seattle probably a thousand times. I still have extended family who lives there. However, the condition of downtown Seattle is unlike how I'd ever seen it before. Now, granted, I wasn't there during COVID, but you'll see in the video, Jonathan took for his Chosho Twitter account, uh, needles, foil all over the sidewalk, opener drug markets, opener selling of clearly stolen goods with security tags still on them, told to us that they were right from the Nike store. And I was nearly assaulted by someone, but Jonathan's great at de-escalation. He stepped in, he asked the woman why she was getting far too close to me and... I'm laughing now, but it was uncomfortable at the time, even being uh, from Portland, where we have a fair amount of aggressive people out on the street. Um, and he, she was, you know, up against my body, and he got in between us and asked her for a hug. She gave him a hug. He later told me he knew her, and she was having a bad day. And that's what I think is great about Jonathan. He does this beat, and he walks downtown Seattle for his job, shining a light on the homelessness crisis there, which has spiraled out of control. Recently on Twitter, Jonathan, on his Cho Show Twitter account, shared that the King County Medical Examiner, Seattle's in King County, is concerned that there aren't enough room for bodies due to all the people in the King County area dying of fentanyl overdoses. The medical examiner is talking about body storage. And how to deal with it. So this is heartbreaking. And Seattle was the perfect venue, I think, for our coalition on homelessness and addiction retreat. We followed Chatham's rules, which means I can talk about what was said, but I can't attribute it to anyone. So I can tell you a few things that I learned. One thing I learned is that Portland is an absolute outlier. We went around and shared data about our various cities. We also had uh, someone in attendance, Kevin Sabat, who is was a policy maker in three White Houses regarding drug policy, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama. And he is the only person to have advised three different Republican and Democrat presidents on drug policy. So obviously, people like that in the room know a fair amount and have a fair amount of data. And they also know what works and what doesn't work because they've seen it play out in federal policies. We had mothers who are suffering with children who have addiction, mothers who have children who've died from their addiction. They are part of a coalition called Mothers Against Drug Deaths. They were there. We had formerly homeless and addicted people from all over the United States and from Canada. So this was a North American coalition from the United States and Canada all over the United States. I was the only one there for Portland. Unfortunately, at this retreat for North America Recovers, I learned that Portland is an outlier. I was the only person, of course, from Portland, and it became clear early on, in my opinion, that I was there to provide data about what not to do and to share data about the negative effects of Measure 110 drug decriminalization has had on Portland in particular, but Oregon generally. Uh, 
We all seem to agree that getting off drugs, especially hard drugs like meth and heroin, now fentanyl really, requires incentives because the people on the streets have had their brains hijacked by drugs and in many cases mental illness, in a lot of cases both drugs and mental illness. Regarding incentives for treatment, treatment defined as detox or rehab, not treatment as it was sold to us by the Drug Policy Alliance here in Oregon as quote-unquote peer support or needle handouts. We talked about how shelter needs to be first, housing is earned. We talked about Portugal. Many of our coalition members, Michael Schellenberger included, have been to Portugal and Amsterdam and have talked to Zhao Gulau. Tom Wolf, who was on this podcast, talked to Zhao Gulau. If you haven't heard his episode, go back and listen to it because he talks specifically about his conversation with that doctor. Zhao Gulau is the doctor who came up with the Portugal model. Oregon is nothing like Portugal. Measure 110, our drug decriminalization measure, is nothing like Portugal. Portugal doesn't have open-air drug use. Drug use is stigmatized. Incentives for getting off of drugs, including formal intervention, and if that doesn't work, yes, arrest. According to the Oregonian, on October 22nd, 2022, called Death on the Streets, Homeless Homicides in Portland Eclipse 2021, in 2022, the victims of 18% of homicides were homeless, and that's up from 11% in 2021. January 17th, 2023, Oregon Live, which is the Oregonian's internet newspaper, said Portland's homicides set a new record in 2022. At some point, this is a quote, we have to be tired of burying our children. The article continues, the police bureau tracking homelessness-related homicides for the first time estimated that roughly a third of 2022's killings involved homeless people, both as victims and perpetrators. Now, I want to stop for a minute. This is significant, a third of our homicides involve homeless people as victims and perpetrators. That's what makes us an outlier. What makes us an outlier is the intersection of crime and homelessness in Portland. And that includes the most serious of crimes. According to this same article in the Oregonian, many of those killings involved guns. It's a departure from the past when knives and beatings often resolved disputes between those living on the street and guns were treated as a commodity to trade for drugs or other things. If you've talked to people from PPB, as I have, they will tell you, and you probably know from this podcast if you're a longtime listener, that PPB assumes that every homeless person in Portland is armed with a gun. And most, in fact, are. And that's how they're trained to respond. It's hard to understand why Portland's homicide count has continued to increase while it's dropped in other cities. Portland has always had a street drug culture. It's now been misnamed as homeless encampments. Homelessness is a propaganda word that was purposely used to conflate different categories of homeless people. I think we have to make distinctions between homeless populations. Jessie Burke, who's been on this podcast, she owns the Society Hotel. She's a community leader. She had a wonderful episode on this podcast. She is very good at separating populations of homeless people in Portland. We have different categories. We've got people who consider homelessness a lifestyle, We have people who are severely late-stage drug-addicted. We've got people who are severely, severely mentally ill. And then, of course, we have predators and people who are 
engaged in serious crimes when we're sent here by various cartels because there is a vacuum. That's what happens when you defund the police to the tune of $27 million and you have an anti-policing culture. You create a vacuum and criminality steps in. Homelessness, the term that we're using now today, conflates people in tents, in open-air drug markets, the severely mentally ill who are untreated, the family one or two paychecks away from being back in an apartment, and the single mother with five kids. Those groups should not be combined. We do a pretty good job here in Portland of taking care of families and the mom with five kids. You don't see them on the street, but we're told by people in Portland that the homeless are just like us. They're the Jode family from the Grapes of Wrath, and they're telling you to ignore your eyes and ears and your experiences with addicts and with severely mentally ill who refuse to take medication. But in Oregon, we have no way to compel them to do that because we have demonized mental institutions, and the bar is so incredibly high to institutionalize anyone. Multnomah County Commissioner Sharon Myron talked about this when she came on this podcast. If you go back and listen to Sharon's episode, she did a really good job at talking about what her work with street medicine. She happens to be a doctor. She also happens to be a trained lawyer. So she's got these intersections of education that she can apply to her work. And she will tell you the bar is way too high to be able to institutionalize people and that there are a lot of people that, in fact, need to be compelled to take their medication to get back on track in regard to mental illness and need to be compelled to go to rehab. And statistics say that compelling people to go to rehab does not have, in general, does not have bad outcomes and, in fact, has the same outcomes as people who decide to go by themselves. And if you talk to any of the Multnomah County judges who used to be involved in drug court, they're not anymore. They're now only involved in drug court in regard to measure 11 crimes, which are the most serious crimes in the state of Oregon. In regard to lower level crimes, we can no longer divert people and uh, send them to drug court and follow them along that journey and bring them back as many times as possible. We can't do that anymore. But if you talk to those Multnomah County County judges who did do that, they will say that was some of the most rewarding work they've ever done, and they watched people get clean over and over and over again. And if they relapsed, they helped them get back on track and wrap them with services. And the incentive was, you're doing this or you're going to jail. You can kick in jail, and it's going to be miserable, or you can... Go to detox and rehab where you can get some medically assisted treatment and it'll be much more comfortable for you. And nine times out of 10, that's what they would choose. And the judges will tell you that they've seen long-term success stories. Look at Tom Wolf. He came on this podcast. He will tell you that he's one of those success stories. He um, ended up in, in jail and that was his impetus to get clean. Now, In Portland, we've got these open-air drug markets in these tents and people walking around on the streets who are clearly mentally ill, many in a state of psychosis. We're being told to ignore our eyes and ears and listen to what they tell us. This is really about drugs and mental illness, even though our leaders from Biden on down are telling us this is about economic destitution. Tina Kotek will say this is about housing. She'll say it's strictly economic. That That asks us to ignore our own experiences with the homeless and mentally ill family members like myself, uh, immediate family members. It tells homeless people, 
formerly homeless people like Susan Griffin, who's been on this show, Tom Wolf, who's been on this show, to ignore their own experiences with addiction and homelessness. So those are the things I learned. Some of it is extremely depressing because we're such an outlier and it's hard to know what to do with us. Um, But it's also a real sounding of the alarm here in Portland, Oregon, about just how bad things have gotten. The good news is we have a website, NorthAmericaRecovers.org. We've got policy prescriptions on there. I'm going to do everything that I can to lobby for those policy prescriptions here in the city. And I can use help promoting the organization. I can use help promoting the talking points on the website and the policy prescriptions. And then I think what we need to do is use organizations that are open to um, our philosophy about treatment and rehab, such as Portland Party, to try to select leaders that we can put in, in power, that we can work to support, that we can have house parties for, we can write checks to, we can get the word out about an effective plan to deal with the root causes of homelessness. So that's a lot of what I learned. I'm going to keep sharing what I am learning from North America Recovers, and I really appreciate everybody's support and their interest in that coalition. Thank you so much, everybody. The podcast is exploding. I I think the last time I checked, we had an episode that had 400,000 downloads, and I don't know... Who is downloading these? I know most of you are from Portland, um, but it's from all over the country. And of course, we have our international listeners, mostly from Japan. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody. And I don't know exactly what everybody's using this for, but I I do want to thank you and I appreciate all of you. And as long as I can, I'm going to be here doing this and trying to talk about all of the hard stuff and and bringing on people who want to talk about hard stuff and bringing on people who are doing positive things in the community. One of those people we're about to talk to right now, Chris Gottschall, like I said, we are going to talk about his experience with his mother's mental illness and her own addiction, his experience moving to Portland in 2020 when kind of all of the shit hit the fan. And we're going to talk to him about his experience in a throuple, which I feel like is the most Portland thing ever and a lot of people are curious about. And uh, this is not an HBO show. This is a real guy who's a citizen in Portland, a businessman, successful, lives here. And he is. A, he says he's successfully thriving in this throuple relationship. So let's hear it. Let's get to my guest, Chris Gottschall. Hey there, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your background and I know you're not a Portland native. How'd you end up here? Hey, Kristen. Well, thank you for inviting me on today. Uh, I've been a long time, long time ish listener of your podcast, and I really appreciate all the amazing guests that you've brought on. They've really helped me expand the way I think about things. Um, some challenging, some reconfirming, uh, all interesting, and it's really an honor to be part of that lineup. So, thank you for having me. As you mentioned, I'm not not originally from Portland. I've been here since late 2019. I had an opportunity through my my job to take a transfer from our office in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and to come out here to Portland and help us grow our business out here. And uh, 
it's largely been very successful the last few years, you know, despite the pandemic that nobody could have predicted. I'm not sure I would have chosen to move to a new city right before uh, a global pandemic where you aren't allowed to meet your neighbors, let alone spend time with them. Uh, however, you know, we've, we've kind of muddled through uh, making the best that we can and, you know, trying to enjoy Portland even despite the lockdown. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I live kind of in the heart of the city and when your restaurants started to reopen, they were pretty accessible to us and we did as much as we could to patronize uh, those that remained open for takeout during the pandemic. But it's been a really weird time to be in a new city. Uh, And I think 2022 in the second half is really the first time I've seen it come back to starting to, I guess, you know, bud anew in some regards. People are out, people are doing things. It looks a little bit different than it did three years ago. It looks a lot different than it did 10 years ago, but people are out and I'm starting to feel like there might be, there might be a community here after all. Were you visiting 10 years ago? Do you have a sense of what it was like before you moved here? I actually worked here uh, and I was commuting back and forth between Minnesota and Oregon each week on a project assignment uh, for a large financial institution in Portland. And uh, so I had an opportunity in 2010, 2011, maybe it was 2012, so somewhere in that, you know, the those first- Those were good years. Those the good years, right, right. It was after uh, Occupy Wall Street kind of kicked in. So I remember seeing that in the park downtown. Uh, I kind of lived at uh, like Oak and Six. There's a courtyard hotel down there. And I pretty much lived in that hotel for six, seven months. Uh, so we get to see the city and really experience that. And I always said to my partner at the time, it's like, you know, if Minneapolis ever disappeared, I'd be totally fine waking up in Portland. I really, really, really like Portland. And so when the opportunity came along for me to make Portland home, I thought, well, you don't get this opportunity every day. Let's get out of the snow and into the rain. What did you like about it? Uh, you may or may not know, but Portland and Minneapolis vie for, you know, most bikeable, greenest cities in America. And I think those are the parts that I really appreciated about Portland is the integration of green space. Uh, I, I appreciate how there's at least some transit running through downtown. We didn't have as much of that in Minneapolis at the time. I think Portland's been ahead of them a little bit in that regard. Uh, I love the restaurant scene. I mean, Minneapolis has good eats, but Portland was hands down the place to go to eat. And I, I remember the Kalman guy food truck that used to be, I think at 10th and Alder, uh, where they built that new hotel or are building that new hotel. Um, that Is was that where they're building the Ritz. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, attempting to, it's a, it's a we'll de- see how that goes. Trying to change the demographic of that block. I think trying, from, trying, from, trying, trying is the keyword. I don't know. I think that hotel slash condo development, is meant to attract a different audience than might be ready to live there. If it happens, yeah. So um, talk more about how you uh, experienced Portland once you moved here. Yeah, well, um, when when I proposed moving here, I was, you know, I work in the consulting industry, professional services, so my job largely can be done from anywhere. But my partner at the time, uh, now husband, we'll say, uh, we actually got married as part of the process to move to Oregon. (laughs) 
but he'll joke or he'll laugh along if I joke. It took moving out of state to uh, commit to what I had already been in for 13 years. Uh, he'd been ready for a long time, but it took moving to Oregon and for him to quit his job. And I said, well, now that you need my benefits, come on, let's do this. And congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So we actually got married in Oregon. That's great. Uh, we eloped. It was late 2019. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure my parents are not too pleased about it because it keeps coming up in a joking way that <laughs> they weren't invited. But we we just went out to Beaverton, found this lovely lady uh, who was a uh, officiant, and then we went to Top Golf. <laughs> oh, I, I love Top Golf. And honestly, like. I think we spent 500 bucks, you know, like it was a really efficient way to get married. And um, it's a good thing that we did because, you know, with 2020 coming around and the pandemic, it really uh, put the kibosh on job opportunities for him. So we planned on him, you know, not working for four or five months, ended up being 10 until, you know, he found something to do. So uh, I'm I'm glad that we did that. It worked out. 2020 was also the year that, had me start seeing a therapist. So a lot of stuff happened. I'm not sure I'm not alone in that regard either. A lot of people, I think the pandemic might have been the straw that broke a lot of camelbacks. Yeah, my understanding is there's a huge, still a huge demand for therapy. Did it take you a while to get in to see somebody? And how long did it take you? I mean, I'm a big therapy consumer, so I know it can also take a long time to find a good fit. I got really lucky. I went on my insurance provider website, I looked for people who were close to me, and I filtered down to people who specialize in LGBT issues, and I thought, this is a good place to start, right? And I found somebody who is walking distance from where I live, who takes my insurance, and hasn't required me to wear a mask in session either, and I just think, like... Oh, that's right. We talked about this on Twitter. Win, yeah. win. Uh, That's fabulous. It's been, I mean, yes, we've taken appropriate precautions from distancing and air purifiers and whatnot, but, you know, that's one less stressor that we need to be thinking about while we're trying to engage in therapy. And uh, do you find yourself concerned about COVID just personally? I mean, are you the kind of guy where, like, the air purifier makes you feel a little better? How how do you feel about that personally at, at this point? Yeah, I mean, the air purifier doesn't hurt. Although I think I still carry a mask with me if I'm going to be in close quarters with other people that I don't know or haven't been around for a while. I don't wear it with family, but, you know, I have one. I just have one in case I feel like I need to wear it. Um, I also had COVID really early on before we actually announced the pandemic in February of 2020. I had. Oh, so you had Wuhan strain. It sucked. Uh, it was it was the most intense flu I've ever experienced in my life. I bet. And it lasted for almost two weeks. The first week was intense, like body ache, fever. And then the second week was mostly dry coughing, no smell, no taste. And you were probably, I mean, I would have been terrified. I had no idea. I was like, well, I've had flu before, but this is this Because it hadn't been level. announced. So you didn't know that you had it? No. And like we, we travel pretty frequently. And so, you know, I had, we had traveled to Phoenix, through Seattle, and we had traveled to somewhere else. We went through Seattle twice in the month of February. Yeah, Seattle was your, that was the, the issue. <laughs> I think that was right? the gateway from China, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they, they get all those flights. And so when they, and how did you find out antibody testing? 
Well, I talked to my physician about it, and they said, given the, the how, given when you had it, and when antibody testing became feasible, it wasn't worthwhile because the, prob the probability of getting an accurate result on an individual level wasn't that high. It was the antibody testing was intended for like masses of people, right? So statistically, when you start to measure in a hundred thousand people, you get a pretty reasonable estimate. But on an individual by individual basis, the probability of an accurate assessment wasn't high enough that they recommended doing it. So we didn't do it. They said, well, you have enough of the symptoms. I think it's safe to just assume that you had it. So I, that's almost how I'd prefer to get it, is not know. It's, if I knew I'd had it, I'd just be, at that time, because remember there were all those YouTube videos of the doctors that were dying, and we weren't getting any, inf no shock, but we weren't getting any information from the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have, it would have felt like the plague 2.0, probably. What's impressive is that neither my husband or our partner got it. Like, I was the one who got sick, and nobody else got it, which was really interesting. Um, now, we've all had it since. <laughs> yeah, now but, it's much more transmissible. But that wasn't course. until, like, Omicron came around. Right. And you said your husband and your partner. So does that mean you're in, you're in a throuple? Yeah, yeah, actually, something that kicked off before I left Minnesota and uh, kind of cemented itself when I said, hey, you know, we're going to move to Oregon. You want to come along? And um, took a little bit of thought, but eventually he said, yeah, actually, this seems like something I want to do. So the three of us have been living in a 1,100-square-foot apartment during the entire pandemic. It's cozy. And you've stayed together. I mean, oh, divorce yeah. has exploded, <laughs> but yet you all stayed together. So that says something. I, you know, I would love to pat myself on the back and say it's because I have such great discernment in picking rational, like, even-tempered partners. But uh, I don't think that's necessarily it. Uh, you have to be a good communicator, especially when you are kind of outside conventional standards for society like you have to be able to communicate and that's part of what keeps people together i mean whether you're in a couple a throuple or some other configuration uh being able to communicate clearly about what you want and to listen to what other people are expressing that's what makes any relationship work long term and that is definitely there are hard conversations but because you can have the conversation is why you can stay together this might be too personal, but do you expand the thruple? Like, is the philosophy that monogamy is not your jam? Or is it more like monogamy is not our jam, but this thruple is, and we want to keep that, for whatever reason, it works to have three, and we're going to keep that exclusive? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, you know, for the first 11 or 12 years that Adam and I were together, I don't think we ever thought about not being just the two of us. And this you, just, so you're traditional, very yeah, traditional, yeah, yeah. very we monogamous. Went into it very traditionally minded. And I think, you know, 
spend enough time with somebody, you have enough open dialogue with somebody about what's interesting for you. Like how do you, like you grow together and people stay together if they grow together and can understand how each other is evolving because just because you get committed, you know, mentally or, or legally with somebody doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to grow in the same direction. Oh no. Remind me how long you've been together. So Adam and I've been together, uh, October was 16 years. Okay. Yeah. So my marriage is almost, uh, so so it's going to be 17, almost 20. So yeah, we're, I mean, my husband will tell you I'm a totally different person than when we got married. <laughs> I, I guarantee you mine would say the same. It's just, it's too long of a period of time. Yeah, and you're not meant to be the same person. That's exactly right. Ten years from now as you are today. And actually, I know some divorces that have occurred because somebody's evolving and somebody is not. Or, or, or maybe somebody's not. No... There's no evolution from a particular partner that's dramatic, but it's they just don't want to be married to the person 20 years later that they married 20 years ago, which I also think is interesting. I heard that recently from a guy who just got a divorce. He just said, you know, she was just sort of the same person from 20 years ago, and he didn't necessarily say he wasn't, but he just felt... I don't know that that was uh, not something he wanted to like co-sign anymore. I don't. Mm. It was interesting. I don't look at that as a failure by anybody in there. It's more of a recognition of just the fact that things are different, and you know, these two people might need something different yeah. going forward than they used to need in the past. Yeah. You know, I think traditionally divorce was looked at as a social failing, a personal failing, and therefore it was you know strongly discouraged if not outright no i agree i think it's far less stigmatized and i'm the kid of divorce and i'd like to think i turned out okay uh my parents got divorced you know when i was pretty young but uh you know it happens and i think most people either are product of divorce or know somebody of course at this point of course and i know um you have a really powerful story about your mom who has uh, some mental health challenges. Do you think that factored into the divorce? No, it was, I mean, it was fundamental to, to that separation. It's just very sad. It's, you know, it's not something that my dad wants to talk about. Of course. Much. Uh, he's a pretty stoic guy to begin with. And, um, you know, I know what I know mostly from speaking to her directly when I was younger in college um, before we, before we lost touch, and from my grandparents who eventually started to share information, uh, you know she she struggled with addiction and a lot of different things. Um, <laughs> probably would have really liked Portland in twenty twenty two because she could have found whatever variety of things she was interested in pretty readily available, but. Um, what really saved her was access to inpatient mental health care and detox facility. Uh, there was a, a facility called Philhaven in Pennsylvania where I grew up. And I spent a lot of times as a kid with my grandparents driving out there, waiting to be let in behind the locked doors, visiting with her, uh, you know, because part of the separation agreement was that she had visitation rights. And, you know, got to the point as we got older, we we don't want to go there. You know, that's not really a comfortable place for kids. 
ever. Uh, and we went there more out of pressure and guilt from my grandparents and from my mother. Uh, but we got to the point where we're like, you know what? Um, we'd love to see you when you're out of, when you're out of, uh, out of that care. And, and did she, I can't think of the term, but, you know, get to the point where she was well enough to leave the facility? Well, I mean, she'd been in and out of it several times in my childhood. And I think one of the times I recall my grandmother shared with me that she had forged a check and the judge basically gave her the option of going to jail or going to, to rehab and rehab is an easier choice. So, uh, that's where she went. We, she eventually, unfortunately succumbed to genetic predisposition to schizophrenia. Mm, I'm sorry. And like my great grandma, like I grew up as a kid, went to see my great grandmother in the state hospital in Pennsylvania where, she lived, Grandma Smith lived in the hospital. And that, that's where she needed to be, where she could get the kind of care that she needed. And that has, for me, kind of my lived experience says, that is totally okay. And we should be okay helping people get that care. And in some cases, it is permanent. It's long-term. It's inpatient. And that is part of how we should be looking at the problem that we are facing you know, today in Portland. We'll talk more about that because we have a fair amount of listeners who aren't from Portland and don't know, may not know what you're referring to. Oh, well, <laughs> hopefully they've been listening uh, long enough to pick up on some of it. But, uh, you know, there's been a clear change in the size of the population that lives on the street in Portland uh, over the last few years that we've been living here. Um, and, I am not conducting any scientific studies of people, right? So my opinion is just based on anecdotal observation. This is just eyes and ears. Yep, this is just me, what I've seen and, and heard. But and you, and you live in a, you know, you live in the city proper, so it's it's not like you live in a suburb or something. Yeah, I live in I live in the Pearl, so it's pretty centrally located to downtown. Um, adjacent to Old Town, adjacent to Downtown. You can walk to all those I, yeah. main quadrants. And like, I feel very lucky to live in the part of the neighborhood that I do because we haven't had the overwhelm of tents on the sidewalk right outside of our building. But I mean, you only have to cross one street or two to, to get to some sort of small encampment. Um, and I, you know, I train uh, with a personal trainer uh, on the other side of 405. So I walk under 405, and my therapist is on the other side of 405. I walk under the 405 probably four or five times a week, and I get to see what's happening on, you know, Johnson, Kearney, Lovejoy, Overton, those areas. And it comes and goes, but... You know, we, we have a lot of people who are really struggling with a combination, in most cases, of mental health crises and addiction. Why, why do you say that? How do you know it's, it's mental health and addiction? Well, some of them are observable, and um, I guess I have but a... But, like, word. say more about that. Like, what are you observing? So, you know, when you have somebody who walks around screaming at the, the parking meter... Uh, or fighting with the air, some very observable, you know, physical ticks, so to speak, 
that kind of give away the fact that there's something underlying there. Um, I'm I'm certainly making some assumptions about the less obvious ones. I have a hard time believing that people truly want to live on the street and do drugs, and that's the their mo is to do the drugs. So you I, mean if they were, um, let's say, uh, mentally functional and sober, you you have a hard time believing that that's what they would want. It's hard for me to believe that because of my background. Although, I mean, I've heard people say, like, Portland's where young people come to retire. And there's a portion, probably a very small portion, of people who just think, well, it's easy enough to make it, to make it, you know, on the streets. Uh, so why not do that? I don't think that's common. I think Have that's you met anybody rare. like that? I've not. And so that's why I say, like, I've heard tell of it, but I haven't actually talked to anybody who's like, oh, yeah, I moved here just to be homeless, right? I think... Uh, we have a lot more folks who have found their way here because of the ability to support their their drug habits. Frankly, I mean, I uh, it's it's uh, a frustrating position to be in because I was somebody who got fooled by the one ten measure. Uh, oh, I did. I'm, I'm a dumbass who voted for it too. I like. And, you know, did did can, you hear Tom Wolf's episode? I did. Re- I, I did mean, listen boy, to him recently. That was. <laughs> and the differences between how Oregon is moving forward and how Portugal actually handles. How things. was a lie? I'll just share with you a little bit more about my Please. my mother's situation. Uh, she did remarry and married a really nice guy. And what I learned later was that he was a heroin addict. Mm. So uh, eventually, that's what took him. And so mm. I lost a stepfather so to heroin. I lost my mother to mm. drugs and schizophrenia. Um, I've been very lucky that my dad remarried when I was young, and I have a wonderful stepmom that I don't even think of as a stepmom uh, and haven't for a long time. She's just mom. And I'm so I'm lucky in that regard. Uh, and I had two sets of extended family that wanted to spend time with me and my brother and um, I also have four other siblings as well I come from a big family but it's a blended family right he had two she had three they had one together but all of us have some sort of except for the baby all of us have some sort of divorce and likely mental health connections in our families of origin Um, you know it's really common and so I think so I'm, I'm not here to to judge uh, on the basis of that, I think what we need to do is focus on helping people cope with what situation they're in and to the extent that we can help them rehabilitate so they can participate in society again. Without forced, without forced mental health care and forced detox, I guarantee you my mother wouldn't be alive today. So are you saying in the state of Minnesota it was easier for you to meet that standard, which my understanding is harm to self or others relatively easily with your mom? Uh, she's in Pennsylvania. but Oh, yes. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. I moved to Minnesota after college and um, kind of spent most of my adult life there so far, but I grew up, grew up in uh, south-central Pennsylvania. In fact... 
I want I want to meet this Terrence guy who was just on your podcast. Uh, he's from West oh, Terrence Fil- Moses from West Philadelphia. Yeah, and I was like, okay, this guy. I, I definitely, yeah, and he goes into like Kensington him. and mm, stuff. I just listened to that over the weekend, actually. So. He's amazing. He sounded like we're so lucky to have him in this city. I want to meet this guy, so uh, maybe we can talk about. Well, that. Well, you know where to find him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. the city has his number on their website. I, I already. have If you this. want a homeless camp cleaned up. The city will tell you to call Terrence Moses. I've looked up his uh, yeah. organization's website. I'm going to open up my browser. So I, I will, at the very least, I'll make a small donation. Uh, oh, please. I'd I love mean, to. He's, he's doing God's work for sure. Yeah, like God's work indeed. But also the city and the state should be helping out with it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting an argument from me no, on no. that issue. Yeah, yeah. We're just doing it ourselves at this point because it's not, that's not happening. And I, that's why I really admire him for stepping in and he's got a lot going on. You know, he's a vet. Um, he's going to he's an accomplished guy. He doesn't have to do this kind of stuff, but he really, that's, he's passionate. Well, and Kristen, I got to tell you, like, that's part of why I was so excited to talk to you about this is that, you know, I'm an outsider, much like many of these folks, Terrence and himself, right, uh, came to Portland for a reason, ended up deciding to call it home. Like, I, I'd love to focus on, like, what I what I love about Portland is the fact that there's still some kind of magic here. Yeah, I let's talk about that. don't, I cannot put my finger on what it is, but I still really like being here, <laughs> despite the issues that we're facing. Tell me about that. What, what you like tell me tell me what that what that magic is you know and and I think that's why I'm not I'm not ready to just walk away from it it's uh it's it's when I walk out my door with my dog in the morning and there's a tree-lined street and there's people moving about and I see the streetcar driving by and I can walk to a coffee shop and I can get some work done and just living life if you cut out the the challenges living life in portland is still pretty nice uh the the weather hasn't changed too much uh i know we got some crazy snow over christmas but that's unusual uh it's much more temperate than where i've lived all of the rest of my life and i love that about it i could live here happily year round although I will admit, I have to get out a couple of times during the winter to get some sunshine. So a lot of it is just you want a temperate climate. So you, it sounds like you do well, like some, really anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, probably like a Seattle or a, you just do better Seattle there. Seattle might be a little too cold for me. Oh, I've, really? Yeah, I've been, I've been up there in the winter a few times and it's definitely a little chillier because, and they are on the water, uh, which I think has a little bit more windiness to it. So um, yeah, no, I mean, I'd be open to Seattle. Um, so for your weather, that really works for you. And then you you made a comment like when you're walking, if you cut out the challenges, t- talk about the what you see as those challenges. I mean, we're talking about the open air drug use and the homeless folks that are wandering around um, causing challenges. How How are you able to, as you said, cut those out? And just see, maybe you're not just seeing it. 
How are, how are you able to cut those out and embrace that magic you talked about? Uh, well, I mean, part of it is just where you want to put your attention. And uh, I've always been kind of a glass half full person, uh, maybe too much of an optimist in some cases. But if I put my attention on only on the things that are bad, then I'm only going to see the things that are bad. If I put my attention on what I love and what's good, I'll see more of that. And the bad stuff will still be there, but I don't want to let it occupy too much of my my attention because our attention is what creates our reality. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think people like Terrence would say that's all he focuses on because he thinks it's the most important thing. I think if the way he's focusing on it is not to like sit at home and be like, oh my God, homelessness is so bad. He's focusing on it from a, I have a mission. Yes, that gives he me feels called. And that is very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, the, that's a, a nuance between it, right? I'm not yet, although I'm, I'm looking for how I'm going to get involved to help you know, work on this problem. Uh, I'm, I'm still in the situation of if I sit at home and think about it or I, I can sit at... I love Sisters Coffee in the Pearls where I spend a lot of my time. And uh, sitting in the window there, you get to see a lot of people traffic and a lot of it is interesting. Uh, and so, you know, if I just think about the crises that people are in and, and how it's weighing on the livability of the city, it becomes more of a drain of energy, right? But if I am in an, in an organization who is out there trying to resolve that, it would give energy. You know what I mean? What What makes you think that's something you might want to work on? Well, you know, I grew up uh, in a Christian, you know, tradition home and spent a fair amount of my youth doing church-related social justice stuff. Uh, yeah, I've traveled to New York City. I've traveled to Washington, D.C. We've done lockouts and raised money to support all the homeless where I, the town I grew up in, I honestly don't know if there were any homeless people because it was such a small suburban, almost semi-rural community. But, um, you know, we still wanted to contribute to the big city up the road, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia. And so we would do stuff to like put ourselves out overnight in February. And all we had to sleep in were boxes, you know, refrigerator boxes and sleeping bags to kind of give us, uh, to build empathy, right, for those really? who are Really? So stuck. you engaged in like a, an exercise, sort of like the mayor of Colorado did. Like you you, you sort of role-played homelessness, if you will. You, I have, you, as, a, as a teenager. Yeah. yeah. And that was a church, that was a church activity. Yeah. And what, what church is this? Was this like non-denominational or was it? Well, uh, I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, which is a small offshoot of uh, Protestantism, and we're most closely affiliated with the Quakers, the Mennonites, and the Amish, which the three of those are probably better known <laughs> than the Brethren. They're also different. Uh, they're, they're different, but they're, they all share an Anabaptist tradition, a social justice, you know, yes. a strong social justice that's component. True. And community. Community is really based. important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... You Less know, individualism. That's where, I, that's where I grew up from. And, you know, I think as I've, as I've grown up, 
become an adult in the workforce, certainly I've gotten some experience outside of that that maybe brings me to a slightly more middle-of-the-road position on how I feel about the world and about life. But uh, that's still at the, at the core of who I am. And you can never erase that, you know, even if, even if you do find yourself succeeding in a capitalistic system. Do you still identify as a Christian? Yes, but I'm not super devout about it. More spiritual at this point in my life. Now, that being said, my therapist and I have been talking about finding a church that has a strong social justice you yeah. know, component that's local. Like There is a church that I could go to that's from my, my birth denomination. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Here in Portland. Uh-huh. But it's like out by Mall 205, and I like I like the car-free life, and so I would much rather uh, stay find, some find something there. in downtown Northwest area that I could walk to, and preferably not on a Sunday morning. Like I'm more of a brunch Christian, where yeah. I would I'm happy to work on stuff, but I don't want to have to get up early on the weekend to do it. Yeah, I hear that, and and when you see the homeless crisis in Portland and the crisis of mental illness, does that bring up any sort of trauma that you've experienced with your mom? Does that make you think about her? Do you, do you, um, is that difficult for you? That's an interesting question. Um, Yes, yes, and a little bit no, but I think mostly yes, and but in different ways than one might think. So there probably there's at least two parts to this that are coming in my mind. One is, do I think about her? Uh, yeah, because I think there are a lot of people that I encounter on the street, and like this person literally could be my mom. It's probably somebody else's mom or somebody else's dad or somebody else's brother. I also think about it from a the position of how do we encourage this person to get better to try versus just letting them continue to languish in their current situation and you know my dad had a tough love uh, attitude about life and if you want something you got to work for it and you know that's what I grew up on that's part of how I feel about the world um, but I want to be, you know, there's a balance of being supportive of people going that are working on bettering themselves and then also not just continuing to enable that as well. Like it's, a, it's certainly a gray and nuanced area. Some people need more support right now, but we always have to be looking for that opportunity to inspire them to want something more. To change behavior, you can't just want to want to change. You have to actually want to change and get something out of doing the different behavior. And unless you have a community of people around you who are all trying to improve themselves in a similar or same way, it's really tough to do on your own. When you say a community of people, do you mean like a a recovery group or a sober living home or... 
Those would both be great examples of what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, my mother had a sponsor in AA and NA that certainly helped her through some of her challenging moments and I think also watched her relapse at, at times. But you, you need that sort of hand-to-hand combat on this social challenge. Uh, I think you, one of your recent guests was speaking about that as well, how you know, it's all about having somebody who's helping that one person. When you're playing zone defense and you've got like one social worker for 100 you know, people who need services, you're probably not going to be able to get to the level of attention on any one of those people that they need to truly make meaningful change. And you're just trusting that they're going to intrinsically find that motivation. It's really tough when you're not of sound mind. So if you were governor of Oregon or mayor of Portland, what, what would your plan be? <laughs> I would be building mental hospitals yesterday. And if, if we can't figure out how to get that done, I don't know how this gets better. What do you think worked so well, let's say, in, in the places you've, you've, you've lived in? What worked so well in Minnesota? What worked so well in in Pennsylvania what is the difference between the places you've lived before and Portland I don't know that I can speak to policy differences but the climate is a huge difference you cannot you're talking about the weather you cannot survive on the street in Minnesota all winter you just cannot and I remember when I was looking at moving there um you know, I had an extended family member who joked and said, well, you know, the weather, it may be harsh, but it keeps the riffraff out. And we joked about that at that time. But, you know, in retrospect, I'm not going to call anybody riffraff because everybody's got value. But uh, it does encourage people to migrate elsewhere during half of the year. And then sometimes they don't migrate back. You find If you find yourself in, you know, Texas in the winter, that's not a terrible place to be, and it's survivable in the summer in some places. Um, so I think, I think honestly, the weather, the climate has a lot to do with where people want to naturally migrate to. And so because we have temperate climate, what are we going to do with those who are drawn here for the less harsh conditions uh, of living outdoors. Yeah, what's weird is, and I'm looking at the, um, it's interesting, I'm looking at the Philadelphia Inquirer right now from January 5th, 2018. There's a story uh, called In Kensington, Battling the Cold Means Battling Addiction. And in Kensington, they, they stay outside. They don't go in shelters. It gets really cold in Philadelphia. Yeah, it can. It can. I mean, it definitely snows. Um, it's colder than it is here, I would say, for sure. It's not Minnesota, which I think can be like Siberia. <laughs> no exaggeration, as you know. No, I know. I've seen it say, yeah. I've seen it say minus 45 right. on the thermometer. Right. And then, you know, like... Hey, it's sunny. 
that's the selling point. Say, oh, it's sunny most of the year. Yeah, but like half the year, you're going to freeze freeze your nose off outside. I love it, though. Listen, I, I don't want to knock Minnesota. It's a wonderful place. How, how would you, how, you... You use the word enabling. What, what do you think it is about Portland that's engaging in this enabling, as you said? Like, how, how, how are we enabling people specifically? Well, understanding that I don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes. Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't work. We, we know you don't work in city government. You're a private sector guy. Yeah. And I, I do want to talk about some of the of what we've been working on in the private sector to try to help get ready to solve this sure. on a bigger scale. But, um, you know, what I have been able to consume uh, from county website or, you know, mostly linked to from people on Twitter who are sharing pretty actively sharing information about what they can they can get access to um you know i don't remember the number but millions of dollars that were spent on tents tents and tarps that could have been spent on you know semi-permanent shelter um i think but we got to get them to go there how do you get how do you get them to go there You're putting me in a position to sound like a hard ass, but um, you don't give them another option, right? Like, I don't know that the mayor's plan had been fully baked when he announced it. Which one? I mean, there's been so many. The sanctioned campsite. Mm, The more recent. The more more Mm -hmm. recent one, the Mm -hmm. election election cycle one. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree that it was probably announced for timing purposes rather than completion of the of the idea um but i like the idea i think it does make sense to be able to give people places to be that are not yet permanent housing because we know that we don't have enough permanent housing and if we just keep waiting for permanent housing for all of these people, we will never solve the problem. And so, of course, the criticism to the mayor's plan, which is, you know, that people won't be living along the sidewalks anymore or alongside parks anymore, it's an alleged, you know, quote unquote, proposed camping ban. Camping is a weird word because it evokes, you know, a family paying for a spot in a forest or something. But the idea that you won't just allow, be allowed to sleep on a sidewalk or sprawl yourself out in the gutter anymore, or pitch a tent anywhere you want anymore, um, you know, the argument against it, of course, is that he's. I mean, some people, I would say this is anti-Semitic. Some people say it's it's a concentration camp. Uh, some people say, in fact, I think the woman who's the head of JOIN said that, um, which is a one of the biggest nonprofits in the city that deals with homeless people. Another argument is, 
they don't they don't want everybody lumped together. They don't want to lump the mentally ill with the more quiet people. Uh, they don't. They don't. Uh, apparently, the mayor's plan is to pack hundreds of people on one site, and they don't. They want. They want smaller camps. I mean, what do you say to all that? I mean, I think we should stay open to any of those ideas also being part of the plan. Uh, I mean, I know that there's a strong not in my backyard kind of attitude toward the smaller camps and yeah, NIMBY or whatever they call yeah, it. I mean, that's a real challenge. And at the same time, it might need to be part of the solution. I, I understand the concern about putting too many people who are unstable in a concentrated area together. Um, I think some of the comments that are geared more toward inciting anxiety for political purposes like the concentration camp comment i think is frankly disrespectful to people who actually went to concentration camps right i would agree with that you know uh, i've toured auschwitz uh i i you know understand the horrors of that and that's <laughs> so far from what's being proposed here they also call it an internment camp you know a camp where you put people who who they would say that means a camp where you put people who maybe haven't committed a crime, but they're distasteful or they're unwanted. What do you say to that? That these are internment camps. Is it safer than letting people pick a random place on the side of the highway to sleep at night? (laughs) It is. Therefore, I think it's, at least marginally better than letting them do that. Saying, here's a place for you to go if you don't have anywhere else to go. And that is, you know, assumes that you've got at least some sort of mental faculties where you can make a decision for yourself. Uh, I think if we were talking about painting a, a, an ideal picture, we would say, okay, you know, here's somebody on the street they aren't don't appear to be actively dealing with a drug problem there's no obvious signs of mental health crisis we can offer them the designated campsite but if either of the other two are true we don't send them to a designated campsite we send them to either a detox facility or inpatient mental health facility until they can demonstrate that they're okay taking care of themselves i understand that those other two components don't exist right now yeah you're saying that the laws in philadelphia or at least in your experience with your mother were easier to navigate. oh yeah absolutely and then of course there were facilities also which we don't have she's in a state home today and uh, how long has she been there uh, a long time and it was that against her will she wasn't happy about it. And what, what precipitated that? How were you able to, what did you need to show to get her there? I was not, thankfully, not directly involved in submitting her to that care. My uncle took care of that. Um, do you have an understanding of what your uncle did or needed to do? I, I don't have a very clear picture, but I know for sure he would have had to demonstrate that she wasn't able to take care of herself living alone. Like she could not care for her basic needs when bouts of schizophrenia 
came up. And I mean, I mean, I think a lot of people would look around here. I had, to, I had to step over two bodies to get through the door this morning, which is actually less than normal. And I only walk about 50 feet. Um, but I think a lot of people would look around here and say, well, these people clearly can't care for themselves. Um, I see people in their car every day who are, you know, just like hanging open, clearly high on something. I mean, I can see it every day if I look for it. Um, there's a lot of people here who need direct support, like one-on-one support to be able to come out of the place that they're in. What about the argument that they should be free to just be addicted? That you're infringing on their liberty? That is way too libertarian for me. Like, I am a little bit libertarian, but not that much. There, there is an expectation of a functional society that takes care of people and doesn't just let them languish in this place. I mean, what does it say about us that we're willing to Narcan somebody over and over again but not actually help them get out of the problem situation that they're in? Like, if we just keep them alive, somehow that's better than actually helping them improve their life. Well, and you and I voted for that under 110. <laughs> we all have regrets. <laughs> so if you could, would you overturn that ballot measure? Absolutely. If, and I'm not sure, maybe you know, if there's a, a movement afoot to do that, I would absolutely sign on to that. I think... I mean, there's so many complexities to, to the situation. There like, are. Like... We haven't even talked about the police, and I don't know if I if we need to get into that, but the police need to be out there and helping make the assessment of like, is this a is this a shelter problem? Is this a drug problem? Is this a mental health problem? And, think, and maybe it's not I the think police. The argument but is that that's Portland Street response. Yeah, that's about job. what I was about to say. Is like there's an there's PSR, and I know that they need a lot more people. At least, at least that's what I'm hearing, right? They need a lot more people to be able to cover the number of constituents that they would need to serve. Um, but they need to work together. Why do you say that? I mean, because a lot of people in Portland would say the police have no business dealing with homeless ever at all or dealing with mental, mentally ill people ever, ever, ever at all. Because, And they would say things like they endanger them, they kill them, they're... Um, not trained, they escalate situations, they don't know how to de-escalate, it needs to be social workers, it needs to be uh, former councilwoman Joanne Hardesty's Portland Street response people. Like, I mean, what are you, what is your response to that? I say that they need to work together because there are some dangerous situations where a social worker is not maybe not equipped to wield a weapon if they end up in a hostile situation. And so why don't we look at pairing people who are highly trained in mental health with people who are highly trained in handling difficult situations that may result in physical violence? I think... Yeah, and I think the police would say... There, there isn't a lot of cultural support for that, and they, they just don't have enough bodies to do that. They're too busy with homicides and stuff. Yeah, I, I hear that, and I, that makes me sad. Yeah. Like, so you were not a supporter of the defund movement? 
man, uh, that is the worst slogan that they ever came up with for that idea. Because I don't think anybody, well, okay, I'm, I'm projecting. No one that I know actually wanted to defund the police. We would love to see them be more skilled in the de-escalation and understanding how to navigate some of the mental health crises that may cause people to act in a way that, you know, like walk out in traffic and cause an unsafe situation. Like that doesn't, that doesn't require you to draw a gun necessarily. Um, but, but then in your world, that's a social worker situation, right? There's like a, yeah, that's where the combo comes in, right? It's like, Hey, uh, we might need some police to control traffic or, isolate the person at risk, but maybe they're not the person that goes and immediately talks to that person. They, they let a social worker in to run that. I mean... But isn't that what the defund movement is arguing or was arguing, that we're going to take that money and we're going to divert it and we're going to put it to the Portland Street response people? I think that it, that argument is valid, um, but the way that it the way that it went down, I don't think has resulted in what we really need. So I don't like the slogan about defunding the police. I would have much rather said we need to just increase funding for mental health services. I, I don't think we needed less police in any dimension, right? And I rode transit to get here today. I only ride the streetcar because I feel relatively safe. I've read the articles about what's been happening on the Max. Oh, yeah. Do you hear about the 78-year-old who had his face chewed off down to his skull and an ear was ingested? And people stood there and did nothing. Where's Where's the community? My understanding is it occurred at like 2 o'clock in the morning and knowing Portland as well as I do, I don't think it was a situation where anyone who was present at that time was functional in any kind of way. Understood. (laughs) I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that we just don't have enough data to make, to make informed decisions about how we should move forward. And to some extent, I, I imagine, and I'm, you know, I hope that that's not true, but there's got to be some incentive for not collecting the data and not proving certain patterns in, in behavior. <clears throat> so when in the last couple of years we've been living in, in this reality, right? This has been Portland in particular, Oregon more broadly has been an interesting experiment <clears throat> in the combination of measure 110 and defund the police. And I hope that other cities can learn from our experiment and hopefully avoid some of the challenges that we are dealing with. Like what, what in particular would you say, let's start with measure 110. Like what in particular would you say um, other cities should learn from 110? You cannot have one half of that solution without the other. You can't legalize possession of hard drugs without having facilities to send people to to deal with their drug addictions because that has only made it, it encourage people who are dealing in those hard drugs to spend time here. And I don't want any other city to go down that route. Uh, it seems to have been 
I mean, maybe the intention was was meritable, but uh, the execution has been very lacking. And so, you know, something that if I can, you know. You're saying you've noticed an influx of people moving here post 110. I mean, I think the criticism would be, how do you prove that that's why they came here? We need more data. We need more data. We need more data. Yeah, but Chris, if we keep data, then we have to hold people accountable. So that's why we need that's more not data, Kristen. <laughs> I mean, okay, like <laughs> I know you're being a little challenging to me here, but like I'm going to believe that we can overcome the cultural challenges and make this a better place. If I start from that presumption, then I say, well, how do we? What what information do we need? How can you? Okay, but I think that's important to talk about. You said cult, cultural. Um, do you think that that uh, those cultural challenges are real? I mean, based on what we've just talked about, yeah, I think there's evidence that those cultural challenges are real. That there's a strong live and let live attitude, or like live and let die. Yeah. Attitude even. Right. Uh, which I don't know. I just am not comfortable with that. Uh, there, there is a point at which it's okay to demand that people behave differently. Why do you believe that culture can be changed? I'm an optimist. Uh, that honestly, how do you intend to change a cult? I mean, you, you came from Minnesota, like you're going to walk in here and change the culture of Portland, Oregon? I'm not, but I'm here to support other people in working on that, right? And I know, like, as an outsider, I might not get much much traction on my ideas, but, um, you know, I think there are a lot of other people who do feel the same way and just aren't sure how to go about bringing that change. How do you, why do you think that? Why do you think there are a lot of other people who feel that way? I'm just from casual conversation with neighbors and colleagues, folks like yourself. I mean, I think that I, th- I I don't know that the voting patterns bear that out. I think the yeah. choice of Renee Gonzalez does. I don't think the choice of Tina Kotek does. Um, I mean, she was in she's in the legislature that was rolling out, you know, for instance, all the like the decarceration legislation and the legislation um, the, the legislation that went further than the Boise decision about homelessness. And, I, and that's who we voted for for governor. And I don't, it wasn't really close. I mean, I think we knew relatively early that she would be on election night that that was, she was the winner. Yeah. Uh, I have to choose to envision a different future than what seems likely and try to work toward that future despite what seems to be a lot of resistance. Why why do you have to? It's the only way to stay sane. <laughs> I mean, I know I, 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 I won't fight you on that. Anything is possible. It may not be <laughs> probable, but if you don't give it a shot, you don't have any chance. And so what is your timeline? Like, okay, five years from now, if we're sitting across from each other and things are worse or status quo, 
will you say the same thing, do you think? I think you have to be pragmatic about, you know, putting in the work and seeing if there's a result. Um, It would be, I think it would miss a terrible opportunity if I just said, screw this, we're moving somewhere else. And uh, because Portland is actually small enough where I think a a, a reasonably small group of people can affect a change. Um, So, like, what are you planning to do? Well, you know, starting by getting involved in a couple of organizations, um, I know that you've had a couple, I mean, several folks on your program that uh, are working in what I think might be the right direction. In particular, I really like what We Heart Seattle has been doing. Yeah, We Heart's great. Um, And I've spoken to to Kevin Dahlgren. Kevin's great. And, um, you know, talked to him about getting involved, but also you know, some of the the work that we've been doing at my firm to prepare better data collection about the way programs are working. Yeah, and I, I, let's give you a plug here. Why don't you talk for a bit about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, when, we, uh, when we became aware there was going to be some federal funding for mental health services that happened, I think, in it was either late 2021 or early 2022, we decided to take a look at that and say, well, you know, I, I'm a director in one of our technology businesses uh, here at Slalom uh, Consulting in Portland. And we said, like, we have so much access to easy-to-use technology. How can we take advantage of the things that we know how to do where we are every day enabling our clients to change the way that they work make their employees' lives better, make their customers' lives better. Um, And when you think about the public sector, we still have employees and customers, but we just call them, you know, constituents or the public. Um, And how do we we leverage technology to improve the life of the citizens of a city or a state? One of the things that we thought we'd take a, a crack at was creating some accelerators to enable more robust information sharing and analysis of trends and information. So uh, we've spent several weekends and countless other hours during the work week trying to put together uh, a demonstration-ready product that helps organizations manage their facilities share information about how their facilities are being used um, and even tracking what people are are in need of. So kind of to break that down a little bit further, when let's just say Portland Street Response approaches someone on the street and they're willing to accept uh, help of some sort, the kind of support they need will be different if they have a pet if they are uh, a a single mom with a child or LGBT identifying, like there are different types of shelter that might be better suited for people of different demographics. And so we want to be able to, to capture what it is that is the first choice, the best match for that person. Even if there's not space available at that shelter, that we want to understand that that was a need that was identified so that can inform where we focus our attention on the next shelters that we're 
that we're building and uh, the type of facilities that we're providing. Then when people go into, uh, let's say it's one of the, the tiny home villages or something, you know, having the ability to know uh, that those units are being occupied, that people aren't ending up back on the street after they've been given uh, a place to stay, understanding then how they, you know, when they leave that facility and what happens to them after that. It's more of a whole life cycle rather than just a snapshot in time. And understanding that, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity around privacy and personal information. We've, we've worked to make sure that this can be done in an anonymized way so that we, nobody who's looking at trends and data ever needs to know that it was Kristen who mm-hmm. checked into this shelter and then checked into that shelter and then ended up in rehab. No one needs to know it was you. We will just know that a person with some identifier has this pattern of behavior. And once you start to see patterns, then you can start to think about solutions to support or resolve those patterns. And so where are you in regard to this project and who's using it? Well, we built a prototype uh, using you know, Amazon Web Services as a backbone for the search and analytics database. Thinking about using uh, Tableau as the analytics engine there to look at all that information. And then at the organization level, we actually have a client I won't share their name because I'm not 100% sure, sure. No, I, understand. I, I can. Um, but we have a client that has actually deployed a facility management solution based on Salesforce's platform. Uh, you might recognize Salesforce because, well, they just laid off 10% of their workforce last week. So if you're tracking economic news, they've been in the news. Um, but they're based in San Francisco, and that has taken me to south of market, the tenderloin, et cetera. Sure. I go there every year, at least yeah. once a year. Uh, you know, so I've been deeply invested in Salesforce for the past 15 years of my career. And I know that the power of that platform makes it super easy to create an engaging experience for both the street response or volunteers or facility workers, the administrators, the frontline workers. Um, we can make it relatively painless to collect data that can then be shared for analysis after the fact. And so by using that technology that I don't think a lot of nonprofits are thinking like, hey, let's use this big enterprise commercial CRM platform to manage our business. The thing is, you can use it to manage any kind of business, any data driven business process oriented, you know, problem, you can take advantage of it. And Frankly, one of the greatest things about Salesforce as a company is their like 1% uh, program for salesforce.org. They give back 1% of profits and staff time uh, through volunteerism, and they give away the licenses for their product for free. I think up to five, five you know, users or employee licenses, and they heavily discount the rest of it. So... When we look at our client, who is a nonprofit organization who just started a, a tiny home village here, uh, you know, they basically got it for free. And all we had to do was provide them with the, the prepackaged solution that we had created. It's almost like installing an app for that, right? So, so you're saying you are currently implementing this? 
they are actively using it. And our goal is to find other organizations who are interested in taking advantage of that same technology asset and working with them to start having more than one organization using the same solution. And then as we expand that, we'll have adapters so that um, organizations that don't use the Salesforce solution still have a way of sharing their information with the, the larger body. So in my model here in Portland, the model that I have in my head uh, is, you know, the joint office should really operate the search and analytics component. And then they should enable individual organizations to get up and running to share their information with that, you know, that large exchange of data. And it might require us to do a little bit of custom work here and there, but we're looking for ways that we can make that more of a plug and play solutions that you don't have to change the way you work to take advantage of participating in the solution. And, and are you, have you been in touch with the joint office about this? In a limited fashion, yes. You, we don't have like super deep political connections. And so uh-huh. we've had to work through the front door, you know, uh-huh. with a lot of people uh-huh. and talk to staffers and whatnot. Um, we have had a chance to show this to uh, Commissioner Jayapal. And we have had a chance to speak to one of uh, Commissioner Mirren's staffers. And did any of them? Everyone has expressed interest, uh, or at least in some fashion, to say, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, I think the biggest feedback we got um, from Commissioner Jayapal was that wanted to make sure that the data was safe, the personal information was safe, and that it was something that could also overlay with all of the work that's going into Build for Zero. Because we, they're not looking to abandon that, but they want, it would be great if there was. Who is implementing Built for Zero? Because I know um, Sharon Myron wanted to do that, but she lost. Do you have any sense of anyone who's implementing Built for Zero? I can't speak to what's happening with Built for Zero uh-huh. here in Portland. Uh-huh. All I know is there are references to Houston and how they've taken advantage of that program as a model. Yeah, but they can build. I mean, have you ever, well, you haven't because you live in a condo, but just you wait until you want to try to move a toilet two inches and see what happens. Watch, watch, just try to pull a permit in the city of Portland. The other, the other issue that we have is anytime we want to build any kind, I don't know if you heard Jesse Burke's episode, but anytime mm-hmm. we want to build any affordable housing, it's, it costs like, five times as much as it would cost for you to build like a relatively nice house for yourself because the environmental people have their hands in it. We've got all our, we've, we've got all these quote unquote environmentally friendly standards that have to be implemented. Those are expensive. Um, and then, and, and we've got the prevailing wage thing. That's a, a thing that's, you know, inordinately becomes, makes things inordinately expensive. Um, there are there are all these very there are all these various paws out along the way, and then by the time you get the darn thing built, it's like you know three hundred and eighty five dollars a square foot for quote unquote affordable free or affordable housing. I mean that's why the Houston example always seems silly to me. I mean that's <laughs> you think Houston has to deal with that <laughs> now. 
if you listen to the T.J. Browning episode, I think she made a really good argument when she said, well, we have an urban growth boundary that helps protect the environment. Houston doesn't give a crap about the environment. It needs to be a balance. They've overbuilt. They've destroyed a lot of their wetlands, and I have no argument against any of that. I mean, I, I totally agree with her. I think there has to be a balance. But, I mean, the idea that we can just do what Houston's doing and build a bunch of buildings... Well, maybe there's another argument there for why we need to have facilities for people rather than just waiting for housing. Oh, you're not going to hear argument from me. Right. But we, you it, will, I think you will hear arguments from the loudest voices. I think you already know. I mean, to the extent you've voiced this already, you've heard arguments from the loudest voices in the room in opposition to that. Are we serious about solving the problem? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, and not if you think... People have the right to be addicted to drugs and live on a sidewalk. No. Clearly. Yeah. No. If that's where you're at, then solving the problem isn't on the agenda. Right. It's on my agenda. I think there's a lot of great people who work in nonprofits who would do great work solving even bigger problems if we can get this one out of the way. Right. When I went to college, I entered as a piano performance major. I actually got Where did in. you go to college? A small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Elizabethtown College. Yeah. And why did you choose that? Um, actually, it was one of the six colleges that was founded by my church. Oh, and wow. so there was a small incentive scholarship wise as a member of the church to be there. Um, but I, I wanted to go to NYU and I, I got in. But frankly, the financial aid package is just didn't compare well yeah and living in new york is just inordinately expensive did you so is your father may I ask still alive yeah and how and is your father still part of this church yeah my parents still go regularly and oh is he remarried mm-hmm. okay and how do they feel about your throuple situation or do they not know <laughs> i know we've been to we went to my baby sister's wedding together all, all three, three. Yeah. okay uh it, it was fun because at some point in the reception, I think after my dad had a couple beers, he finally walked up and he's like, so uh, how'd you guys meet? Like, slash, what, so do you just, like, live in the other bedroom? And I was like, no, dad. Like, you know how I'm married, <laughs> you know how I'm married to Adam? We are, like, we're dating. So you we're dating broke Brad. it down. Yeah, and, like, you just lay it out there. And you could see him sit there for a minute and ponder. And he's like, Okay, so just treat him like he's part of the family. I was like, that would be great, Dad. And he's like, and ever since then, you know, I I don't know. I, th- I think partly my parents are probably like, this kid does whatever he wants, and he hasn't ended up in too much trouble because of it, so we're just going to let it go. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's been really awesome. In fact... Was uh, that surprising to you? Well, I... <laughs> How does your church feel about homosexual relationships and monogamy? Well, Do you a, have any sense of that? First, I don't know much about your church. The first part of that question is it's complicated. Uh, it depends which congregation you're talking okay, to. Okay, so that's right? not a bad answer. So, so it's not a hard no. It's not a hard no. Uh, and in fact, so it could be a buffet depending on where you go. Yeah, I mean, the church here in Portland is pretty progressive. so As most are. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the church that I grew up in was in retrospect, one of the most progressive denom- or, you know, congregations of my denomination that I could have been oh, in. that's great. But I didn't know it at the time, and it didn't 
it wasn't very overt. You know, my coming out was what prompted us to start uh, an LGBT like focus group, support group within our church context. And that was a really tough time. Um, but that was also still the late 90s at that point. And it wasn't quite as easy uh, as it is today coming out. So, yeah. You know, like. That's exactly true. It, it's just evolved over time, right? They've met a couple people that I had dated in college. Uh, and, I mean, it's been 16, 16 and a half years since I. And that's a long time. Since I met Adam. And so, like, he's been coming around. He keeps coming around. Um, they quite like him. Uh, and they always have. That always helps. When I visit on my own, they're always like, where's, where's Adam going to come? Yeah, like, that's very sweet. And even now, it's like, well, where's Adam and Brad? Like, where where are these guys? Like, they they treat them like family, which is exactly what you want from your parents. Uh, we've actually been to family weddings in each of our three respective families since we've been together. Um, wow. And, and, well, I mean, we've, Brad's been with us almost four years, so uh, three and a half. And so, yeah, I mean, you just start living life. And uh, honestly, like, I think the most common reaction that we get, we've gotten from people who are comfortable speaking, you know, about it uh, is like, you guys seem really happy. Like, it seems like it works. And this is like, well, yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> if it didn't work, I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, but I think there's a presupposition that, you know, one person is kind of on the outside. And that's not how, that's not how we're operating, right? There's four relationships in my family. One with me and Adam, one with me and Brad, one with Adam and Brad, and one where the three of us exist together. And so there's more complexity. Like tonight, I have date night with Adam. It's a one-on-one date. And that is important because we have a unique relationship that does that exists, the pre-exists the thruple mm. and mm-hmm. still continues to exist in parallel with the thruple. And then is there any perception from the third member of the group who is not married as feeling like second class because they're not married to either of you? I mean, he was the ring bearer at the wedding, so... <clears throat> He was involved, but no, I don't think oh, so. Oh, and he was already a member of yeah, your like, family, your Thrupple family. We were already then. we were already in a committed situation at that point. And, and he was fine with that. Yeah, and you know what? It'd probably be different. Like I identify as Gen X. And what does that mean? I identify as Gen X. Well, I are mean, you just Gen X or not? 1980, Gen X. By some people's measures. I don't think you are. By, no, no, listen. By some by some people's measures. You might barely be. You might barely be. You're, I get what you're saying now, though. You feel more comfortable around Gen Xers. Gen, you feel more comfortable around Gen Xers than you yeah, feel like, around. Yeah, well, like, I relate to a lot of millennials. those. Millennials. I relate to a lot of those attitudes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and. Although now that I'm getting, now that Gen Z is getting so much older, I, I don't think millennials are that. I, I used to think they were pretty far removed from us. I don't think that they are. <laughs> well, I mean, Barry Weiss is a millennial. Just wrap your mind. Do you know who she is? No. So she's a journalist. Uh, she was at the Washington. She, no, she was at the Wall Street Journal, and that was too conservative for her. Mm. She's, um, but she's, she's a Zionist. She, then she was at uh, the New York Times, and that was uh, she, she, um, 
her editor, she was doing the op-ed stuff, and her editor was fired for allowing the Tom Cotton editorial to run, and she felt that that was unfair, and she resigned in protest, and um, she... I think she's been in male and female relationships. Now she's in. She's currently in a female relationship. Her wife's name is Nellie Bowles. She's a really good journalist. And after Barry left the New York Times, she kind of like pioneered the whole Substack thing. So mm. she has her own thing. She's got a podcast called Honestly, and she's very. Um, I mean, she's just very moderate and and in so, so many ways traditional, right? Because she is a Zionist, but in so many ways non-traditional as a lesbian with a baby. So, um, <laughs> it, but anyway, a millennial. So I don't. I, I it's fa- fa- it's as they get older, it's more and more fascinating to me who's a millennial. Well, Brad is solidly a millennial, and I think the younger generations have a lot more flexibility in what they expect of people from a personal relationship perspective. You know, uh, the, they're just okay with gay, bi, pan, poly, whatever. They're yeah. like, well, just tell me, just tell me what you're doing, and like, we're cool with that, just innately. Now that I think about it more, one of my best friends is a millennial, and um, he's incredibly conservative. <laughs> So I don't, millennials have surprised me when they first were coming of age and I was in what 30s, late 20s. I remember thinking um, they because they were starting to work at the law firm that I was at. And I remember thinking they don't understand how to work and they're not interested in working. And I still think they're not. They they're, they And maybe they're just doing it smarter because they seem to be doing it just fine. Um, I They seem to have been able to engage in some kind of balance that I frankly admire. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I I am definitely the workaholic in my are life. Are you? And so, are yeah. you the only Gen Z in your house, or Gen yeah in your house, or Gen X in your household? Yeah, I, my husband was born in eighty three, so I th- okay. I think where I've seen the line drawn is either at eighty or eighty three uh-huh, for millennials. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I don't think of him as a millennial, but um, Brad is a little bit behind that, and so he's clearly in the millennial. Uh, demographic group. Um, and he just comes, he just came in and is like, oh, I like both you guys. Like, you're, all, you're already together. This seems cool. You know, it was, it, and it, yeah, it wasn't really like by design. We weren't saying like, we need to find somebody who fits this model. We were just, we just kept an open mind about as we meet new people in life. Do we like people? Do we want to hang out with people? Um, Is it people? Ge- I, I I now I'm forgetting your answer. You, the three of you are committed to each other, though. Yeah. But yeah. but you're saying to the extent somebody wanted to bring a fourth person in, you're saying you're you're a communication guy, and so you would be. You're not going to foreclose that conversation. I'm not going to foreclose it preemptively. Right. I just. Because you're a communication guy. And it, you're just, it, it would probably be important. really challenging. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, I th- I'm open for whatever conversation needs to happen. Mm-hmm. I want like my well, my, my interest is important. more about like that's everybody being happy. That's probably why you've been married so long. My, yeah. My, my number one goal is for the other person to be happy. Yeah. I think that's really nice. Other people in my situation. And, you know, uh, 
Brad is Brad is not gay. He identifies as bi, and so you know, there's even that component of it. it's like, well, if you ever oh, hmm. if you ever miss, you know, the other half of what you used to you used to be able to dabble in, like that's a conversation we gotta have. And then, and then, if you, the three of you could get married, would you? And is that something you're interested in, like fighting for as a policy change? I mean, if you're you're know. in the right place to do that, if you're interested in that. Well, there is a town, I think, it's either Vermont or Massachusetts, where they legalized um, multi-person. Probably Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in the Northeast. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, like, so you could go there, I guess. I think functionally, it feels like we already are. Uh-huh. You know, we live together. I know, but aren't share... you nervous about rights and, and sort of legal uh, sticky areas if somebody got sick or yeah no that's a really fair point and as like i'm the eldest of the three of us and so i probably think about that stuff more than anybody else uh yeah i i actually have a got i got a reference from somebody for um like a family law attorney who might be well situated to help us set up oh good the right stuff right honestly yeah like the fact right. is the place that we live is in my name only. And so like, and yeah, right. Adam and Her- concern that Adam or? inherits it if I die, but what's Brad's right to it. Right. Mm, technically nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, only by virtue of staying in the relationship. And so there is a point where you're like, well, I'm concerned that he's. Well, if you care, care about of. Brad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's obviously a much more complicated mm-hmm. topic. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, you know, just trying to like save retirement and do all mm-hmm. the basic stuff like everybody else. And mm-hmm. that's, that's something you need to make some space for. And I just haven't made space for that yet. Mm-hmm. But interesting question. What else, what else uh, do, do, do we need to get to on the, on the technical, beautiful looking vision? What is it again? Vision map? Mind map. Mind map. Uh, no, I don't. We talked about the lady on the airplane. No, we did not talk about that on air. <laughs> well, I, and I mentioned to you ahead of, you know, hitting the record button, um, an experience I had. I was actually a delegate to my church conference one year and I had to go to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, I didn't know that's why you were going. Okay. Yeah, which makes it even was more interesting, recent? right? Uh, probably five, six years ago. Pretty recent. And now, uh, did your church know that you were in a thruple? <laughs> I wasn't at that point. Okay. Uh, but the congregation that I was part of did know that I was in a long-term relationship. Gay, gay relationship, else. and yeah, they were yeah. fine with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, the people who founded that congregation were lesbians. So, Oh, wonderful. Like, okay. You know, super affirmative. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I was a delegate to our, to our annual conference, and I even was a a moderator at one of our tables, which meant that I was tasked with making sure that any debate that happened at the small group level was balanced and that everybody got to express their opinion, even if they were, whether they were opinions I liked or opinions I didn't totally care for. I was was supposed to, you know, really step out of that and just be more objective in managing the conversation. But I was surprised because I was also one of the younger people in that room uh, but it was a, a nice acknowledgement of a mental maturity that I brought to that to that experience. Uh, but after I spent a few days there with some church folks where one of the topics was 
should we let those gosh darn homosexuals in the church? Really? <laughs> that continues to be a hot topic. It does. Oh God, yes. Uh, which is part of why. Like, you mean in the in the national organization? Yeah, nationally. Yeah. Well, that's disheartening. Yeah. Listen, I that church gave me a lot, and I appreciate that. And it's also incredibly unpopular. So if they want to continue to lose members, they can feel free to do that. That is partly how I look at it, right? It's like when you look around this room and everybody here is on social security and you think this church wants to survive. I'm sorry. That thing is dying it's, out. It's a real risk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that could be a total other topic about like, what do we do with empty churches? I think Jesus would have done the more progressive option. That's that's my Same. that's my version of Same. Jesus, right? Uh, and being more of a New Testament person than an Old Testament Same. person. Uh, there's a lot of. I mean, who did he hang out with? Mary, the prostitutes, the, prostitutes, uh, the sinners, the lepers. Like he hung out with the people who were on the outside. The of poor, society. yeah. So, I mean, the untouchables, the so lepers. Here we are talking about this and saying like, oh, how how does that inform how we? It, experience than the homeless crisis in our city and um, like that's really what's driving me to do more rather than just be upset about it and concerned is like yeah you know me what? too get your hands dirty and so if any <laughs> if anybody hears this and either wants to talk more about the technology solution that we've been working on and how we might deploy it or has a great opportunity for an organization that you know, would be a good way to channel my energy. I'm open to hearing about it because, you know, I still consider myself a newbie to this city. And we, we, having not had a chance to develop a lot of connections during the last two years of COVID, we're still relatively isolated. And so... Um, yeah, especially here because a lot of people are still terrified of COVID and yeah. prefer to... I mean, shoot, my neighborhood board meetings are still on Zoom, so I... Well, if you want to have a conversation with me and you really want me to wear a mask, I'm happy to respect that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll meet with anybody. Well, that's very generous of you. So, Chris, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we connected, and um, thank you for um, being engaged in the city. It's a real honor to be here uh, again. Uh, I appreciate the work that you've been doing to get so many different perspectives on the air. So thank you for having me and thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, it was fun. I hope you come back and hopefully you can talk to us about your new nonprofit and uh, the joint office that you're serving with your technology, right? Because we're optimistic. We're optimistic. We're going to end on that optimistic note. We'll, we'll do that. And I um, I have a note out to Andrea right now about helping to, to lead some of the Portland-based cleanups because I really want to get I really want to get involved there. Oh, the there you go. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that because, and anybody who wants to can reach us. So Andrea Suarez and Kevin Dahlgren, friends of the show, uh, run, help run the organization We Heart Seattle. You can find it pretty much anywhere, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Um, reach out to them directly. You could also donate weheartseattle.org. It's right on their homepage is the the don the donation um and they are i i can tell you um because i know firsthand i've seen it that they're they're from what i've observed very very careful with their funds um very frugal um the last time i talked to andrea i can't say if this is still true but this this is like certainly 
um, a year after it was uh, formed, she's no one was taking a salary, including her. And mm. I think that's I might I think that's still true. I don't have any reason to believe it's not. So that gives me hope. It certainly wasn't formed for her to have a job. She actually has a paid job and she is paid very well at that job. This was just sort of her passion and Kevin Dahlgren's passion. And so they're engaged in it and they're doing great work. And um, everybody should go back and listen to their episode to understand their philosophy. But the philosophy is consistent with what Chris has been talking about today, which is it's inhumane to allow people to sleep on the streets. They focus on recovery, not um, not harm reduction. So the idea is identify and they get to know people just frankly, just like Jonathan Cho does. They get to know the homeless population. They know their names. They know their family members. They know their pets names. They know, um, where they were living a week ago, where they're living now. They know where, uh, their relatives are. Um, many of them, uh, many of their outreach workers are in touch with these people's relatives and the goal is to follow them uh, with their journey to get them what they need, which might include anything from socks from and food to a, a hookup with a shelter. And then, of course, their end goal is to get them the mental health slash drug addiction treatment that they need or alcohol treatment that they need. And they just walk with the walk with the homeless until they're ready to do that, which I think is great. So if anybody's interested in, in that philosophy, um, that would be We Heart Seattle and please donate or even just reach out and, um, let the, give them a call, let them know. I think Marisa, Marissa Gaston is a person who usually picks up the phone and let her know that you want to, um, even if you don't want to donate, you want to do something, with them you want to do a litter pick you want to see go 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 do one of those I, I highly encourage everybody to just do one of those to watch how they work um because it teaches you a lot about um it teach you teaches you a lot about the home our homeless population and the homeless population in the pacific northwest frankly because andrea goes back and forth seattle and portland um but it also teaches you a lot about how to interact with um our rather large homeless population in a compassionate way and and they work with these people one-on-one there is no one size fits all so they figure out what they need and you can watch them figuring out what they need which is so cool so that's my plug for we heart seattle which was you know lengthy but i think deserved well deserved (laughs) thanks again chris thank you